0: Well, hello and good morning, everyone. How are we? Good. We're doing good. Is everyone loving the sun this weekend? How awesome is that? It's like driving and you're just like, what is going on with my eyes right now? Why can't I see? It's so good. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's so good to be with all of you on this Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some really nice people coming down the aisles right now that would love to get a copy to you. All you have to do is raise your hand. And they will pass one over to you. And you can make your way to Mark 10. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. We're going to start there in Mark uh, chapter 10. And I'm really excited about today because we are kicking off a new series, a brand new series called The Final Days of, of Jesus. And do you know why we're calling it this, The Final Days of Jesus? Do you know why we're calling it this? Because we're going to be looking at The, the Final Days of Jesus, exactly. You see, I oversee the creative and content and communications, and we were asked, "Hey, we're going to do a series on on, on the, the last week of Jesus." And we thought, and we prayed, and we worked really hard, and we said, "How about um, the final days of Jesus?" And they said, "Sure." So that's why we get paid the big bucks to do that stuff. So what we'll be doing is every week we'll be taking a look at a different day of Jesus' final week, week by week, getting closer and closer to Resurrection Sunday, to Easter Sunday, we're gonna be spending the next couple of months doing this. And if that seems like a long time to be spending on one week in one person's life, let me just assure you that it is not. As you look at the Gospels, the Gospels spend so much Time on the final days, on the last week of Jesus Christ. If you look through each of them, Luke spends about a quarter of his time there. Matthew spends about a third. Mark spends about two-fifth. And John spends nearly half of his time on the last Days of Jesus. When you look at all the Gospels together, all four of the Gospels, there are 89 total chapters. Four of those 89 are dedicated to Jesus' first 30 years of his life, and 85 are dedicated to the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. And of those 85 chapters, 29 of those chapters are dedicated to Jesus' final week. And so there we see that about a third of the Gospel writers' material is dedicated to the final days of Jesus Christ. And do you know why they spend so much time there? Because it's that important. It's that important. And what we're going to see as we look uh, through these last days of Jesus' life is that, is that Jesus was extremely intentional. D- Jesus was extremely purposeful with everything he said and everything he did in his final days. Nothing happened By accident. Nothing happened haphazardly in Jesus' final days. Jesus was on a mission. Jesus had a purpose. And what we'll see on this Sunday that we'll be looking at today is this On Sunday, Jesus clearly reveals his identity. That's what we're going to see today. On Sunday, Jesus clearly reveals his identity to the public, whether they realize it or not, whether they can see it or not. Truly, this is what Jesus is going to do. And it's interesting because throughout the Gospels, Jesus so often was so protective over his identity. He was protective about his identity. Do you remember stories of Jesus when he would heal someone? Say he healed a a leper and, and he told the leper, hey, go to the temple. Go to the temple because lepers had to live in a leper colony outside of a typical society. And he said, go to the temple. Show yourself that you are clean so that you can re-enter society, that you can re-enter worship at the temple. Be part of God's people. But, but, but listen, don't go and tell anybody else. Do you remember those stories in the Gospels where Jesus is like, don't tell anybody else about who I am. He wanted to keep his identity under wraps. He didn't want to let the cat out of the bag because he knew that when his identity was made plain and made clear, it would cause some waves. And yet here we are, though, on this Sunday, where Jesus is choosing to be very clear about who he is to the public. Now we're going to turn to the text in just a minute if you're not there already in Mark chapter 10. But one thing we need to realize before we jump into Mark 10 and 11 today is that Jesus and Mark, they weren't West Michiganders, right? <laughs> no, they weren't. They were they were Jewish. And they lived a long time ago, and Mark, the biographer of Jesus here that we're going to be looking at, he was Jewish, and he lived a long time ago. And we could pick up our Bibles, and we could open them and start reading, but we wouldn't quite understand everything that's going on because Jesus and Mark and his readers and many like them were steeped in the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And they would have known of certain prophecies and certain things about a coming Messiah. These would have been rattling around their heads. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at three important things, three important prophecies before we jump into Mark ten forty six through Mark 11, 11 today. And listen, listen, we're going to go deep on the Bible fast, and we're going to stay there a long time, okay? Are you guys with me? Are you guys ready for this right now? Because listen, the more you buy in now, the better the payoff is going to be later, okay? So let's dig in now. Let's jump in. The first one is going to be Isaiah 35, okay? Isaiah 35, verse 3. Prophecy about the coming Messiah. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. In Isaiah, sometimes he uses this phrase, your God will come. Sometimes he uses this phrase, your Messiah will come. They're sort of interchanged throughout Isaiah. And he says, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes, listen, listen, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Okay, so if you're writing down notes, you can write down Isaiah 35.3. And the important thing that we need to take note about this prophecy right here is that when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. When the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. You're probably like, yeah, of course, I know that. I've read through the Gospels. I've seen Jesus do that before. He's healing the blind. But listen, the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they, they performed amazing signs and wonders, many of which Jesus also performed, miracles of healing, raising people from the dead, feeding Many, miraculously, you see, these miracles weren't original to Jesus. We see others like Moses and Elijah and Elisha perform these miracles, but one thing that none of those guys had ever done was they'd never healed a blind man. That's because that miracle was reserved for the coming Messiah. And you would know that this man wasn't just another prophet because he was going to do this miracle, Isaiah 35, 5. Give sight to the blind. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Zechariah 9.9. Another prophecy about the coming Messiah and Zechariah writes this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king or your Messiah is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Now listen. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and the Hebrew word there for cut off means broken or destroyed or annihilated and he shall, this is the Messiah, and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's the the thing we need to see in this prophecy right here is that when the Messiah comes, this is really deep right here, he will be riding on a donkey, Okay. That's it. That's it right there. When the Messiah comes, he'll be riding on a donkey and he'll be ushering in his kingdom. It'll be a sort of public statement, a declaration, something is happening. I am ushering in my kingdom, and it's not going to be like your typical kingdom of power with war horses and chariots and bows. No, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom of peace. And you will know it is coming when the Messiah rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9:9. 9, 9. One more. Malachi. Malachi 3. Uh, verse 1. Malachi is the last prophet before John the Baptist comes onto the scene and and he's prophesying during a really difficult hard time in the history of Israel. They're in exile um, uh, to to, to Babylon. The Shekinah glory of God which was the manifest presence of God in the temple which the temple was like the center of the Israelite heart and theology and, and like the center of the universe and God was gone and they were in exile and the people were scared and yet God's prophets start to speak up again and we see in Malachi 3, 1, Malachi say this, Behold I, and this is God speaking, send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And you know who he's referring to here? This is, this is John the Baptist. This is the prophecy concerning John the Baptist. He will prepare the way for Messiah And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, that's messianic messianic language right there, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Okay, the important thing here is that when Messiah returns, he will go to the temple. When the creator God of the universe comes back, he is going to come to the temple. Okay, those are the three things I wanted us to look at. Are you guys all still with me right now? You guys all still following along? Okay, now that we have that background, let's jump into our text today, Mark 10, 46. Let's look there now. And here's the first thing I want us to see. We know that on Sunday, Jesus clearly reveals his identity here in Mark ten 46, We're going to see Jesus' identity confirmed. Jesus is confirming his identity here, Mark 10, Forty-six, And they came to Jericho. Why are they coming to Jericho? Why are they traveling? Well, Jesus was from Galilee, which was the northern part of Israel, from a town called Nazareth, kind of a backwater, rural, nowhere place. And they were journeying with hundreds, maybe thousands of others, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And so they would have journeyed down from Galilee, down along the Jordan River, and they would have crossed the Jordan River right at Jericho. Okay, So that's why they're in Jericho. And they're going through Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, right, because they're taking this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, blind, poor beggar on the side of the road, sidelined in life because he had been dealt a really difficult hand. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he had heard this Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' name was Yeshua, which was a popular name back then, but he was Yeshua of Nazareth. And so his fame started to spread. His celebrity started to spread. Certainly this blind beggar had set up shop on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he had heard these stories of this Jesus of Nazareth, and all of a sudden he starts to hear, well, this Jesus of Nazareth is coming through, and so he hears about this, and look what he does. He speaks up, and he says... Jesus, son of David, son of David. And son of David was this messianic term in Israel because a prophecy in 2 Samuel said that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that he would be David's great, 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 something, great grandson so it was this messianic treatment. So Bartimaeus is identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent because he was just some pesky, dirty, blind boar, uh, beggar on the side of the road. But he cried out all the more. He's tenacious. He won't stop. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you and and throwing off his, his cloak." He sprang up. What does it say? He sprang up and came to Jesus. The important thing about that cloak here is that like a cloak back then was a really important piece of clothing that you would carry around with you. And then you would wrap it around yourself if you got cold. And then when you went to sleep, you could lay it on the ground and sleep on it or use it as a blanket. And if you were a beggar, oftentimes you would take your cloak and you would lay it out in front of you and you would collect money and food and you would wrap everything up and take it with you. And look at what this blind beggar does. Jesus calls him and he casts Aside, potentially his one earthly possession to follow after Jesus. 51. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the Way A couple interesting things about the end of verse 52 there. The word follow there is the same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 8 when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And not only that, secondly, Bartimaeus followed him where? Where did he follow him? What does it say in N52? Followed him where? On the, on the way. Maybe some of your translations say on the, on the road. The Greek word for way or road there is, is hodos, and it's used throughout Mark to express not just a literal road, but the way to follow Jesus. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus uses to refer to himself in John 8 when he says, I am the what? The way the truth, and the life. And so not only is Bartimaeus casting aside his cloak and following Jesus literally on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, but he is following him with his life. He's now a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Jesus is confirming his identity as the long-awaited Messiah by doing what only Messiah can do, heal the blind. He is fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah 35, 5. Jesus is confirming his identity as the Messiah. Now, Mark 11, verse 1. Here's the second thing we see. The second important moment we see. Jesus' identity declared. Jesus' identity declared. Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And so now remember, the healing of Bartimaeus happened uh, on the other side of Jericho. And so the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem was the final leg of this pilgrimage, okay? And it was a 15-mile journey. Jericho's about 800 feet below sea level. Uh, Jerusalem is almost 3,000 feet above sea level. And, and you would make this journey. It was through, it's through this desert. It's rocky. There's no vegetation. And you ascend nearly 4,000 feet to get to Jerusalem. And as you get closer to Jerusalem, there are these two towns that back then would have been like outside villages or suburbs called Bethphage and Bethany. And they were right at the summit of the Mount of Olives. And you would go, this, this climate change, it would be desert and then all of a sudden green lush vegetation. And you would crest the summit of the mountain and you would see there in the distance the city that you were journeying for days and days and days to see, which was Jerusalem. And Jesus gets his two disciples and they're there They can see it. And Jesus says this. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Brand new. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. Have you guys ever read this part of the story before? You familiar with this? You ever wondered, like, what's going on here at this moment? There's a bunch of interpretations, but, like, the one I'm going to sort of sit with here is this idea that, like, Jesus is just, like, he knows, right, because he's Jesus, and he's never wrong, and he knows, like, he tells his disciples, say, go into that city, make a left and you are going to see a brand new donkey. Like, no miles on it whatsoever. It is nice, okay? Go to it and untie it and bring it to me. Some people might be like, what are you doing with my brand new donkey? I just bought that. Put the down payment on that. And just say, hey, Jesus needs it. I've been thinking about this. If someone in your neighborhood has a really nice car, just go to their house this afternoon, open up their front door, Take the keys, and if they ask you, what are you doing with my keys? Just tell them, Jesus needs it. (laughs) And just see what happens, okay? Let us know, right on the connect card. Let us know how we can pray for you. (laughs) All bail requests go to Pastor Craig, (laughs) okay? He's got that covered. Just kidding, don't do it, because you're not Jesus. Um, Verse four. And they went away. Okay, so the disciples go. They're like, all right, Jesus, we're going to do this. And they went away and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They're like, "Ah, well, he was right. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying my brand new colt? And they told him what Jesus said. Jesus needs it. Bring, and they let him go. It's amazing. It's amazing. What's going on here? Well, remember... Zechariah: :9. 9, 9. Jesus is getting ready to enact this prophecy of the coming Messiah. Remember, he just got done healing Bartimaeus and, and, and confirming his identity as the long-awaited Messiah, and now he's preparing to declare this identity to those around him. Verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it like a saddle, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And a lot of us know this story. If we've heard it preached, it's usually preached on the Sunday before Easter. This is typically called Palm Sunday. And what's going on here? Why are they doing this? Well, typically back then, roads were not paved. There was not a sanitation department that would upkeep the roads. And so, so the roads were dirty and grimy and dusty and covered in animal filth. And, and what they were doing here by throwing their cloaks and by throwing these branches on the road was people did this only when someone very special entered a town a royal person, a very powerful person. And this was like a celebration. This was like a parade. you got to think of these branches and the cloaks like streamers and confetti and balloons. And and they're they're celebrating and they're pumped. And this Jesus of Nazareth, he has arrived. And and they're singing. Not only are they doing these things, but they're singing a song. Look at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed, they're all around him. It's like an impromptu musical. It's like the high school musical right now or something like that. And everyone's just singing and dancing, and they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. I mean, David's a strong language. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna, Hosanna is one of those words that maybe many of us have sung in church, you know, like, we sing it, and we're just like, Hosanna, you know, and we're like, I don't know what I'm singing right now, but it sounds really good and Christian. Hosanna is actually a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means save us. Save us now. It has this sort of desperate plea and cry to it. And not only that, everyone's singing the same song. Like, how do they know this song? Was it like a top 40 hit in Jerusalem at the time, and they just played it a lot, What they were singing was was from the Psalms. This particular is from Psalm 118. And it's from a group of Psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 called the Hillel Psalms. And these Psalms were typically sung by pilgrims on their way from Israel or the Mediterranean area as they were journeying up the hill, up the the way to Jerusalem to prepare their hearts. So they're singing this song in Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes is this Hebrew idiom, which kind of meant we welcome you here. And how often do we sing a song like that in the first couple songs? We welcome you here, God. And they're welcoming this Jesus of Nazareth in. And you have to remember, they're celebrating, throwing their cloaks, throwing these branches, singing this song, not to some king who's prestigious and powerful and glorious with these amazing followers, riding in on a war horse. No, they're singing it to this backwater rabbi from Nazareth. Riding on a donkey he took from the village ahead of him. This is who they're singing to. Whether the people realize it or not, they are declaring Jesus' identity. Jesus has gotten on this donkey and he is declaring his identity. Now, look what happens in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. A tiny sentence that we could easily blow over there real quick, but what's happening here? What's happening here? Connect the dots. What did we read earlier? What was it? Malachi 3, right? Malachi 3. God's presence in God's temple had been gone for hundreds of years and then all of a sudden, here he is and there's the fanfare and the shouting and the singing and Hosanna and the palm branches and everyone's having this party and certainly the party has made its way to the temple because, wow, this is such an amazing occasion that the presence of God would be back and return to the temple and yet, look at the rest of verse 11. Look at the rest of it. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late he he went back to bethany with the 12 do you understand how bizarre this is right now in this story how strange this is you have this massive celebration on the road into jerusalem hosanna hosanna but then it's getting late and jesus goes to the temple and and and, and there's no one there he gets in to the temple he looks around he surveys the area and then he heads back. It kind of feels like Mark has done all of this hard work, and it's the end of a day. And Mark's just tired, and he's like, "I need some coffee." They got tired, and they went home. That's the end. But that's with how intentional Mark has been. That's clearly not what he's doing right now. What Mark is doing right here, as he stops the story like this, what he's doing is he's turning the attention to the, of the story back to us, and he takes this pause. And he's asking us right now, what's going to happen next? How is this all going to unfold? This is day one of Jesus' last week. How is this all going to unfold? Are people going to respond like the crowd? Are the people in Jerusalem going to respond like the crowd? Are they going to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes? Are they going to respond like Bartimaeus and, and, and declare him son of David? And Are they going to experience the healing and salvation? Or is something else going to happen? You see, this moment right here, it's the calm before the storm. It's the calm before the storm. On Sunday, on this Sunday, Jesus clearly reveals his identity. He he, he confirms it as the long-awaited Messiah by healing a blind man, as only the Messiah can do, and then he declares it by, by taking that donkey, by riding on it, and entering into the temple. I know all of that was a lot. We just went through three Old Testament prophecies in Mark 10, 46 through Mark eleven eleven. But listen, we have to stop now and ask, what does all of that mean for us now? What does all of that that we just read mean for us today, right now, in this moment? Well, here's the first thing I want us to see is this. My understanding of Jesus will shape my expectations of him. My understanding of Jesus will shape my expectations of Jesus. How I see Jesus will have an effect on what I believe Jesus will or can or should do in my life. You know, how would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, I'm here a lot every weekend. I don't preach a lot here, but I, I see a lot of you that are familiar, which to me makes me believe that you have a decent understanding of who Jesus is, and so if I were to pull a lot of you aside and, and ask you kind of one-on-one, who is Jesus to you, I think a lot of you would have like pretty solid answers. You'd be like, well, Jesus is awesome. <laughs> he's great. He's, he's the Son of God, and, and he... he forgives me of my sins, and I know I'm going to be with him in eternity. I, I love Jesus. And listen, that would be a great answer. But, but listen, is that who you really understand Jesus to be? Is that who Jesus really is? Like, Do you really see him that way? You know, for example, in Mark 11... You have this scene of those people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. And I bet if you were to ask any of those people, who is Jesus, they would be pretty pumped about this Jesus of Nazareth. They'd be like, who is Jesus? Man, Jesus is awesome. Did you hear, I just heard in Jericho, he healed a blind man. And then I told my buddy, I said, I bet if he comes in riding on a donkey, that's definitely the Messiah. And sure enough, he came in on the donkey. I was like, you owe me 20 bucks, man. I told you he was gonna do it. This Jesus, he's come to save us. He's come to liberate us, but you've got to understand that would have meant different things to different people. You see, in Israel at the time, they were oppressed by this Roman Empire. They were under this rule, and certainly they had freedoms to move and exist and practice their religion, but it was always under the constant surveillance of Rome, the the presence of their armed guard, the, the intrusion of the taxes, and so many in this moment, they understood Jesus not just to be this Messiah who came in peace, but but this this Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome. They they cheered for this Jesus because they understood him a certain way, and they expected him to do a certain thing. They expected this Jesus to crush Rome, to return Israel to her former glory. But but spoiler alert, just in case you don't know how this story ends. Um, Jesus didn't crush Rome. No, no, quite the opposite happened. Rome crushed Jesus and and crushed him at the intense encouragement of probably many of the very same people who were cheering him on in this story that we read right here. Many in the crowd would have rightly professed with their mouth by singing the the right songs who this Jesus was, but they inherently misunderstood him, and that shaped their expectations. Do you see that here? Many, many, many of us in this room here right now, we have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, myself included. We misunderstand this Jesus, and it shapes our expectations of him in a wrong way. It distorts them. Some of us in this room, we just see Jesus as this like shining example of what it means to be a great person. That's always, we, we wouldn't say that to one another, but deep in our hearts, that's really just who we see Jesus. He's this historical figure in this book from thousands of years ago, and, and uh, I come to church on Sundays, and maybe my week was hard, and I just kind of want to come for like a pep talk and to feel better, and hopefully I hear a sermon that gives me a bunch of life tips so that I can go out and really crush it at life, and... That's what we expect. That's who Jesus is to us. Some of us, we, we, we view Jesus as like this problem-solving God, like he's this divine cosmic Santa Claus. That's, that's who we view him as. And so it's like, man, I love Jesus because when I have problems, I go to Jesus with my problems and he helps me with my problems and Lord willing, he takes those problems away. I mean, you look throughout the gospels and all the people who had problems and they were sick and he healed them and that's who my Jesus is. I expect him just to take away the problems in my life. And yet another misunderstanding of Jesus is is we misunderstand him as a threat. And and I think that out of all the misunderstandings of Jesus, this is actually the closest one to the truth. Because we misunderstand him as this threat because we expect that if he rightfully takes his rightful place in our lives, he's going to disrupt a lot of things. A lot of us here have have, have built a pretty comfortable lives for ourselves. And we're at the center, and people serve us, and I get what I want, and I get what I need. And life is comfortable and life is easy. And I know, though, if Jesus takes his rightful place, he's going to disrupt some things in my life that maybe aren't inherently sinful, but they're just selfish. And I don't want that. You see, there were a group of people in Jesus' time called the Pharisees who had built a religious empire of power and wealth, and they knew that if Jesus took his rightful place, it would mess up their thing. How do you understand who Jesus is? only a right understanding of Jesus will rightly shape our expectations of him and so first importance who is this Jesus well just in case it isn't clear this Jesus is the long awaited messiah the king of the world god himself yahweh embodied incarnate and he is here he has arrived and he is the way the truth and the life He is our life. He has come not just to save you, but he has come to totally satisfy you. He has come to give you life so that you would have it abundantly. It's only when we have this right understanding of this all-satisfying God that we will have right expectations of him, that we will have sky-high expectations that he and he alone can satisfy, and he will meet them every single time. Jesus didn't just come to be this shining example of how to do life well and give us pro tips and life hacks. No, Jesus comes with an unbridled, unconditional love that when we experience it, we are leveled by it and and we can't help but get up from being destroyed by the love of God and love others in the same way without account. Jesus didn't come just to take away our problems. In fact, Jesus has come to be our refuge in the midst of our problems so that we would run to him, so that we would be able to say, with James, I can count it all joy when I encounter trials, not just because they form me into likeness, but because they drive me to the very person I need, the only one who will satisfy me, Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus rightly, we will expect that nothing less than him will satisfy our souls, and not only that, my expectation of Jesus will shape my response to him. My expectations of Jesus will shape my response to him. Listen, if, if all I expect from Jesus is a life lesson, principles, pro tips, whatever, then when life is going well, I'm gonna take Jesus and I'm gonna put him back on the shelf and that's that. I'm not gonna need him for anything else. If all I expect from Jesus is to go to him when life is hard and he solves my problems, then he's effectively a glorified insurance policy. And I'm going to put him in my file drawer and I'm going to pull him out when I need him. But here's the problem. What happens when those problems don't go away? How do you respond to Jesus then? Well, oftentimes you're going to grow to hate him. You're going to despise him and you're going to run away from him. However, if we understand Jesus rightly and we expect that he is my only source of real satisfaction in this world, that must shape our response to him so that we would be nothing less than 100% totally committed, bought in, all in on this Jesus. That'll be our response. And listen, this is what Mark is getting at here. This is what Mark is driving at this this entire time. Mark is basically just a compare and contrast between two different things, and he's doing this all the time. And what Mark is getting at here right now is this. How are you going to respond? The information is before you. The, The account is before you. You are not lacking any data. Mark is now saying, whose way are you going to choose? Are we going to choose Jesus' way, or are we going to choose another way? Are we going to respond like Bartimaeus? Are we going to hear of this Jesus of Nazareth and grow excited and shout out to him and run to him and experience salvation and healing and follow after him in his way? Or are we going to go a different direction? You see, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem before he encountered Bartimaeus in the very same chapter in Mark ten, Jesus uh, encounters someone else. Jesus encounters this uh, young man, and this young man, and this young man was like, he was a really good guy. I mean, he loved the Lord. He went to church like every single Sunday. He led a small group. He even served in in, in Harvest Kids. I mean, this guy was awesome. Like he was a saint. And so. He goes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of shares with him, Well, you got to do these things. And the guy's like, Oh, not a problem. I've been doing all of that since I was like a kid, like just crushing it. And Jesus probably turned to his disciples and was like, This guy, you guys should be following this guy. This guy's amazing. But then no, Jesus, Jesus then says, Okay, actually, one more thing. And the thing you need to understand about this young man was, was he was really well off, he probably worked really hard, he was probably really disciplined. And he had a lot of things. And Jesus said, one more thing. Go and sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And just in case you get too scared about that, like you're going to be really wealthy in heaven, just not now. And and follow me. What did this young man do? Did he respond like Bartimaeus? Did he cast all of those things aside and pursue after him? No. Now the text says that he walked away disheartened, and sorrowful. Why? Because he couldn't part with where his heart truly was. You see, he was doing all the right things. He was saying all the right things, but deep down in his heart, his core understanding of who Jesus was was wrong. And his response was left lacking. Does this mean that we need to go out now and sell everything we own and follow after Jesus? Yes, it does, okay? It absolutely, no, it doesn't. But it does mean that our hearts should not be so attached to any person, place, or thing in this world that if Jesus were to say, come and follow me, we wouldn't, without without hesitation, abandon those things and pursue hard after him. You see, we can say all the right things and we can do all the right things and we can still have it wrong. Jesus has clearly revealed his identity to us here in this passage. What we're left with here right now is the question, how am I going to respond? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, I, I just I, I pray right now that you, would, um, that you would show your mercy to us. And God, none of us in this room are perfect, and even this week we could probably all recount so many ways that, that we chose another way, that we chose a selfish way, that we chose a prideful way, that we chose a way that was not glorifying to you, it was a selfish way, and Jesus, would you just have mercy on us and would you give us your grace and would you strengthen us and would you lift our eyes so that we would see you? God, how how often do we get enamored with the things of this world, with the people of this world? and Jesus, we want to follow you in your way. That's That's where life is, that's where joy is, that's where peace is. Would you help us to do that? Even now, God, would we be resolved in our hearts to pursue after you? to go after you, Jesus. Would we respond by following you in your way? We pray this in your name, amen.